Galaxy Rap Studio Productions. Welcome to Galaxy Brains. The weekly podcast from Galaxy Research. We're so back and we always flow fat and know that I'm never soft when I rock comfort like an old pillow. Stay humble, stack sats, yo, close Zillow. In the street or on the beat, I'm always focused. My money is magic. Bitcoin is hocus pocus. My team's relentless. No, we swarm like locusts. Catch me in the lab cooking up all sorts of potions. Ain't a hater in the world with the skill to damage me. Leave you nauseous taking Dramamine like the Bankman Freeds. If bears want insanity or they try to handle me, mess around and hit him with a super gamma squeeze. Candles greener than the trees so blessed hand out the window in the breeze no stress man in the middle when i write always yo i'm handling riddles with a mic all day on galaxy brains as always i'm your host alex thorne head of firmwide research at galaxy digital thank you for listening to galaxy brains we have a great show for you today christine kim from galaxy research she's going to join us to talk about the modularity thesis to scaling blockchains and what it means uh, for the world of blockchains she has a great report out and, and, and we'll get into it with her We'll also check in with our good friend Bimnet Abibi from Galaxy Trading, as always, to talk about markets and macro. And before we get to all of that, I need to remind you to please refer to the link to the disclaimer in the podcast notes and note that none of the information in this podcast constitutes investment advice or an offer recommendation or solicitation by Galaxy Digital or any of its affiliates to buy or sell any securities. Uh, Phineas, Sam Bankman-Fried is supposedly going to testify in his own defense at the trial. What do we think about this? Another week, more Sam Bankman-Fried <laughs> news. We can't get enough. What are your thoughts? I mean, can he possibly get away with not testifying from what we were, you know, I mean, look, we're just observers, but it looks pretty bad for him. Feels like he's got to throw a grenade in there and try to change the change the narrative. Well, so. typ- typically it is a big no-no. Yeah, very bad idea right? usually. Because it's, you Well, know, you could blow the whole case. You never I mean, know what's going to happen. Right. Right. But I feel like he's control. down bad, so like yeah. you got it's like a Hail Mary. It's a Hail Mary. Yeah. Yeah, it's a Hail Mary. Yeah, and, and big Bitcoin market moves this week as people really anticipate the ETF. It's well, been wild. Uh, there is a there it seems like we have to give you your flowers a little bit here. I don't wanna, you know, blow up your spot too much, but I saw your tweet on Sunday and then the market moved Monday. Yeah, uh, pretty pretty in line with your your prediction, and you're not a big predictor necessarily. That's not that's not what you're paid to do. But yeah, we don't spend too much time like dealing uh, and talking about like you know p- d- short term price predictions. But the the options market was flashing these signals that we wrote about and I tweeted about um, on Sunday. And yeah, I mean it played out basically as expected. That's the gamma squeeze, right? Which was mm-hmm. the the dealers on a net basis were very short gamma and short upside and so as price bled higher on anticipation of the etf on sunday and monday it started to take out these levels where uh people had to buy spot bitcoin dealers had to buy back a lot of spot bitcoin to stay delta neutral which really is what like caused explosiveness um and i should point out i mean this is something we've been talking about right we two weeks ago we had kelly greer from galaxy trading on the podcast to talk specifically about the dealer positioning in the options market and that podcast was titled bitcoin uh, or options market suggest big move could bitcoin options market suggest big move ahead yeah right so we've yeah, been talking it, about it it did play out i mean i and now we see i mean you can see over my shoulder with the block clock right i mean we're doing great here i mean we're Bitcoin's up over 110% year to date. And now we have Bimnet back on the show today to talk about markets again and follow <laughs> up. And I think we continue to hammer this home. Yeah. yeah I mean, it's a, a market that moves all the time. And and it's cool to have people that are paying such close attention to it on the week, on, well, the, on the show every week. So we'll follow up next week. I don't know when Sam's going to testify, and I don't know for certain, but I saw a headline that he will he will testify. Cannot I, I, That will be among the most watched court appearances, I think, in recent memory. And we'll tell you what happened once it does. But for now, let's get right into the show. 
Let's go now to our friend Bimnet Abibi from Galaxy Trading. As always, Bimnet, thanks for coming on Galaxy Brains. Thanks for having me. What a week. I mean, we're seeing material movement in Bitcoin. You can see over our shoulder, my shoulder, the right now as we record on Wednesday, it's $34,700 ish is the closer to 800, but who's counting? Yeah. Know? I mean, it's, uh, and we had a material, I mean, Huge move earlier yeah, in the week. Absolutely. Um, what do you make of this uh, apparent renewed optimism? Um, I think it's entirely warranted heading into a catalyst um, that is highly probable. Um, it was driven by uh, a, a number of things, but one of the main things was a, a short squeeze, particularly um, in the option side of things. The street was, was generally positioned pretty short gamma um, into this break. In addition, you know, you just... You had a ton of folks shorting Bitcoin at, at the yearly highs, and, and a ton of OI ended up getting wiped out right. on, on the perps. Um, and folks, you know, saw the technical break, right? 32K was, you know, uh, year-to-date highs. We broke through it pretty easily. The 200-day uh, moving average that was previously uh, resistance held as support, and now we're you know, once you were above 32K, you are above every relevant moving average and technical um, average you, you could think of. And so yeah. you had a technical breakthrough, a short gamma squeeze, a short positioning squeeze as well on top of that, you know, the, the right. folks that, that got absolutely blasted. And uh, yeah, and, and, and you know, all, all of those factors, you know, come, coming together. And now the question is, uh, can we continue? And my opinion is an unequivocal yes. Yeah. Um, I think very few folks um, anecdotally have caught this move, um, especially in the you know traditional community. Um, it, it's a rally that is under owned, under position. And so I think every 100 points higher um, is a lot more painful than every 100 points lower. Yeah. Um, I mean, this know, is a 20 percent move from the range absolutely. we were in just last but week. But when you have Larry Fink coming on television and telling you he thinks about it as a safe haven. Right. A flight to world, quality. A flight to quality. Yeah. Like the world has changed. He like. The beauty about an institution like BlackRock or these these TradFi institutions is that they institutionalize an asset. By right? definition. They, by definition. Yeah. They give it credence. And so it's not that Bitcoin wasn't institutional before, but when a Larry Fink, you know, puts the BlackRock stamp on it, yeah. it's different. Yeah. And it is different this yeah. time. And so what well, what have we known always to be true? The the liquidity available versus the you know, potential poten demand, yeah. but the potential demand, there's a huge imbalance. Yeah. Um, and I think we're just getting a taste of that. And this could be, again, another Minsky moment for markets. Mm -hmm. um, and where all of a sudden people realize, oh, wait, we have this new asset. Um, it has a role in investment portfolios and we can't ignore it now because every other institution is looking at it. Right. And then here's the beauty about this is that it becomes so self-fulfilling. There's such a positive feedback loop to, to positive price action at the moment, right? Every percent higher becomes, oh, one of the better asset classes uh, performance this year. It gets better on a risk-adjusted basis. The, the story, the thesis gets more credence. Yeah. And so you have this convexity of opinion that isn't you know, price-based, but it's thought-based. Right. And so that's where you are in the market. And that's what these technical breaks are telling you, that you, when you're above a 200-week moving average or day moving average, it tells you there's a change in the trend. Yep. And we know why. Right. And so how do you trade things? 
you buy things going into a known catalyst. Yep. Yeah. And I, and 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 that is what TradFi is, I believe, going to do. Yeah, and we've seen continued strength. It wasn't just the 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 gamma squeeze or the technicals either, right? To your point, it's this this catalyst that people are really waking up to. Even you know we we had a pullback after Monday's incredible rally. A minor one, and we're already back right where we were. Right? Absolutely. Like, and it wasn't a bit. I mean, I think I saw it go as low as 33 at some point on Tuesday. Still, obviously, way above where it was. Yeah, I mean, after it broke 32, like, the can, low was like 32.7. Yeah, like you can, eight, exactly. Yeah. Like you can see, and if you just watch, it's action. just marching up. Like, so there's clearly a lot of demand out there. Um, to your point on returns, I mean, I think at this level, Bitcoin's up 110%. This You're year, have total to return. Math every moment. I know. <laughs> it's gonna it's gonna keep going up. Um, it, so, I mean, it is basically the best performing asset of the year. I, I'm not going to mention. That. I, I did find two uh, equities in the U.S., which we won't talk about, but that that are slightly better. But like, it's. I mean, those are individual companies. This is a giant global asset. Yeah. Um, now we should say, I guess, you know, like in your mind, what could what could harm even leading into ETF approval over the next couple of months? What could like make us bearish on Bitcoin or, or what could impact it negatively in your mind? Well, you know, I think a broader risk off moving markets, yeah. you know, if, if tens start taking out 5% and the curve starts steepening like crazy again, um, I think you'll, you'll see a continuation of the risk off move that yeah. you've seen in the NASDAQ and, and the S&P. Um, and you know, everybody being like, oh, inflation's still a huge issue. QE, yeah. I'm sorry, QT is, is, you know, leading to bonds that have no bid and stuff. So you could go down that, that spiral of thinking right. for sure. In addition, you could have, you know, like things like gold trade down because all of a sudden there's peace and, in Israel, uh, or, you know, or right. ceasefire or Changes. that situation. Or, or even the reverse. Like even if, um, I was going to say, if we have an increased geopolitical conflict and the world doesn't yet treat Bitcoin as a flight to quality. Yeah. Right. So, right now it's got a weird hybrid, but ultimately like everybody is thinking that there is going to be a God candle when an ETF is approved. Right. So it's about positioning ahead of that. Positioning ahead of that. Yeah. And so, you know, folks are trying to pick their levels by dips, but Basically, you you might have only between now and, and the ETF right, might, might be, be your last within chance a month to, and a half to or get so, right? to, yeah to it's get possible. it before that said candle potentially potentially right I agree um, and we think we put out a report um, Chuck uh, Charles you on my team put out a report yesterday on Tuesday estimating really I think a very defensible and conservative estimate yeah. on the potential inflows to to generic no, Bitcoin absolutely. ETFs um, and its impact on price and I mean I you know I think. We think it could be big. I mean, think go check out the reports on our website, but uh, without getting into it, so I, I, I think there is plenty of reason to believe. I believe that there will be significant interest in the ETF. I think some people. It's interesting. The responses to that report were either uh, you're overestimating or underestimating, right? Like people yeah. either think like, well, why would you buy it? Like you could already buy it on Coinbase or wherever else, right? Like why would you need the ETF? Or there's these other products already in the market, and it's like, well, the channel that has 47 trillion dollars doesn't have access to those products right and so that's why we think it could be big on the other hand people are like oh it's too small you know i think we said 15 billion in, in inflows in year one and 38 in year three and people are like it's going to be a 100 billion right and there's really no way to know we're just triangulating but in any case we see significant interest i think in demand and obviously the market's anticipating it yeah no i i you know the the long run how much inflows it gets or right. not it, it's it's going to be tough to ballpark but but again, we go back to the main points. We know that the American capital market's the best capital market ever in history. ETFs, ETFs the best product great. ever to 
right you know, to trade on them to trade. And yeah. so, like, I'm I'm convinced that we have the recipe for you know a, a pretty aggressive price movement, whether it's short term or long term. I, I think it's you know it doesn't right. matter. But right. for the big picture, yeah, like, is it early to? Too early to declare victory? Probably. Yeah. I want to do like a George Bush 04, like in front of mission like, accomplished, mission accomplished <laughs> moment, yeah. but uh, without getting the approval. But if you do get it, it, it it's just it's just monumental. Yeah. You were. I want to point out. You were. I think you literally raised the bit signal. I did two on weeks this podcast ago. Two weeks uh, ago. Yeah. I mean, you I, said it I'm just, saying it here. I'm raising the bit signal. Yeah, you know, I just got to. You got the spidey sense. The, I had the spidey sense on the corn, uh, Bitcoin, <laughs> um, but it's also just the the general level of frustration with central bankers and monetary policy. You consistently see these these central bankers being asked about the fiscal situation. They refuse to speak on it, right? They refuse well, they speak on it in like, a way that yeah, like, avoids the the main question. They're like, well our job is to respond to fiscal policy, right? Is what they say. And because that's the that's not their mandate. Right. But ultimately, like we're in a situation where we're, we're we run one point seven trillion dollars in deficit. We have congressional leaders that are I mean, they can't, Bifurc, they can't. They actually negotiate. can't form a government at the moment. They can't. effectively. And like you're, you're paying a level of interest that's, you know, right now, like just insane. It's similar to like spending on defense, like or right. like 15 percent of the budget on interest, and it's it's only compounding over time. Right. This, this country has, is addicted to spending money it doesn't have. Yeah. And there's no politicians that are like. Well, there are a few, but it doesn't look like a, a, a situation that's going to be addressed politically, and. Therefore, the central bankers like need to like properly like talk about that and address that and yeah. that reality, but they choose not to. And in the face of just mounting and surging like treasury supply, uh, and like they're not even buying it. And so it's like, do you acknowledge that you got to buy all this paper and do MMT forever and yield curve control? No, because that tells people that you have no control over the right. fiscal and like that should in theory even, debase your currency. Even Jamie Dimon, I think yesterday yeah. was, had a big quote about this, about how the, if you look at the recent history of the Fed, you should really not trust what they're saying about the future. No, given, absolutely not. Because they did such their a bad forecasting job. forecasting is so bad. I mean, yeah. it's, just, it, it's just been so politically unacceptable to like criticize the Fed, but Jamie Dimon can do it now because one, like, you know, he's the biggest bank and he saved them on uh, whatever that bank that they bought was, but they need him now because yeah. all of the regional banks are in shit. Yeah. And, and, and like the only reason that we didn't have a huge banking crisis is because we spun up some random facility to give banks loans. Which was effectively really fake, favorable. fake money, right? I mean, or free money. It, it, like well, it's just expanding your balance. Sheet. Yeah. Yeah. It was literally like doing more QE. Yeah. Uh, from a technical just perspective, <laughs> just, just for, for banks, banks at, at these great terms where you can borrow at par on you know About, something that's a, worth that's fifty cents. That's effectively marked down, yeah. right? And so you know, it's just like every solution that we have to monetary policy and market incidents is print more money, lend right. more money, right. lend more dollars on in swap lines. I will give you financing versus. And so, if the entire premise of our monetary system is built on the ability to print more money. That's not a foundation that makes me comfortable. And it becomes ever present like when central bankers keep getting asked about it and they can't acknowledge the simple facts of like their monetary policy is going to be entirely driven by fiscal and fiscal dominance. And so anyway, I could I could rant that on this. That is our man, Bimnet Abibi. I love it. I love the rant. Bimnet Abibi from Galaxy Trading. Thank you so much as always. Pleasure.
Welcome, Christine Kim from Galaxy Research, my friend. Welcome back to Galaxy Brains. Thanks for having me, Alex. Always great to have you on. Um, and, you know, I wanted to have you on, uh, as I often do, but in particular this reason because you just published a great report mm -hmm. um, about modularity, right? I think you said it was called Scaling Blockchains, the Modularity Thesis. Um, this is so hot right now, modularity, right? And yeah. So, and I want to talk about the report because it's, 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 I would say it's a pretty important report from our team. Um, and it, in some ways, is a follow-up to the Ready Layer One report that we published in November 2021. Um, that report, I'm going to set the stage a little bit, and then I'm, I'm going to ask you what is modularity. But that report in 21 sort of elucidated our thesis at the time that outside of Bitcoin, there was this battle among general computation blockchains. And we, we effectively argued that it was Ethereum's game to lose. Um, so that report, we talked about Ethereum and 10 competitors. Um, it really looks today like most of those competitors aren't very competitive to Ethereum and that maybe Ethereum is now winning. And modularity plays a big role in that. And that's, I think, why these two reports are very nice to go together. Tell us, though, what is modularity? What is it? Well, I think modularity is a little bit of like the the big buzzword in crypto. It's It represents kind of like a real shift in thinking of how we scale blockchains. If we think about how uh, blockchains tried to scale or how many blockchain developers tried to think about scaling blockchains before the modularity thesis, before modularity even became a term, uh, we were thinking about layered scaling approaches where, right. you know, on Bitcoin, if you think about it, um, how do we get faster transactions? Let's get a protocol built on top of Bitcoin that settles to Bitcoin, but doesn't actually um, execute every single transaction right. on Bitcoin. Um, and so that, I think, was really how the modularity thesis um, continued to develop out from. Um, the difference, though, with the modularity thesis is that um, with layered scaling approaches, you have these solutions on top of a blockchain that still allows the execution of transactions. It still allows all of the core functions of a blockchain, which is transaction execution, settlement of transactions, consensus. And, you know, a blockchain trying to fulfill all of those functions will inherently be bogged down with just too much, um, too many responsibilities. Um, over time, you're going to find that the, the computational resources that your nodes need in order to support even all those layers will continue to increase and grow and become more centralized over time. So the modularity thesis is why don't we cut out these various functions from the core from the um, from the very from the very protocol layer, from the very base layer, let's just create a blockchain that only is able to do, say, like two out of four core functions: consensus and data availability, which is the model that Celestia is going is going for, and is really the the main focus of the modularity reports, the Celestia blockchain, um, and is actually the approach that I think Ethereum. Uh, developers are trying to trend towards as well. Yeah, so this would be the new long-term plan, although if, to the extent there is one, certainly the direction of scaling Ethereum. Yeah, I mean, that is what one part of Ethereum developers are, are thinking about. But the other part of Ethereum developers, which is um, really interesting from the last couple um, call notes that I have out um, from the developer calls, is that for the next upgrade after Cancun Deneb, there's a big push 
for um, upgrading the EVM. The EVM oh, is Ethereum's execution engine, and there's an upgrade called the EOF upgrade, which is um, the Ethereum object format. And it basically helps the EVM distinguish between transactions that are trying to execute smart contract code versus storing data about smart contracts um, and the applications that are on top of Ethereum. And so um, there is this push to you know, make Ethereum a better protocol layer for executing transactions. But there's another, like we were just talking about. That plays about. into the modularity thesis too though, right? Is that we think, or I guess, do you think in the end, and I don't want to distract too much here, but like, is execution going to be happening on Ethereum? Or I will it be happening elsewhere, you think? Like on, on, a, on a modular layer or like, how does that play out? I mean, obviously, plenty of execution will still happen on Ethereum, so it matters, but... In the short term, you know, right now, all of the execution is happening on Ethereum. Only about, what, 10% of gas consumption is from Layer 2s. Right. But with um, the subsidization of Layer 2 rollups with the protodank sharding upgrade, which will make rollups a heck of a lot cheaper on Ethereum, I think there's this... There's these upgrades that are trying to push user activity to layer twos, but at the same time, you've got developers talking about EOF upgrades, which are upgrades that are gonna try and make transaction execution easier and more efficient on Ethereum that kind of seems competing between these two. And I think it, it really reflects the fact that, look, the layer two ecosystem is not fully mature. And so for Ethereum to be kind of putting all of their eggs in one basket, so to speak, it's a little bit too nascent for them. And I actually think it's a smart idea to continue to develop Ethereum's execution layer um, and not bet all in on layer twos just yet, see how the modularity blockchain thesis pans out. And if it really is, you know, that is the way that blockchains scale, then, you know, continue to move forward with things like folding sharding. Um, right, stuff to support that thesis, rather than perhaps like upgrading the L1's capabilities for on its on a standalone basis for stuff that right if it works right. if it looks like it's working then you expect the development will really move much more to supporting whatever these modular layers need more than say upgrading the EVM yeah I think so and I think Ethereum right now is kind of like has its foot in one bucket and the other it's it's in this awkward phase where Ethereum is not fully you know like Celestia going all in on the blockchain modularity thesis but it's also not fully on the monolithic side where it's like you know what we're just gonna double down on like making sure that we are both you know, a really performant execution layer and, you know, data availability layer and all of the other core functions of a blockchain. Um, and I think this really comes down to um, competition. You know, when we're thinking about the ready layer one thesis of yeah. is it Ethereum's game to lose? I think Ethereum is really kind of of, of weighing what new competitors are coming up. And I think Celestia is an example of a different competitor to all of its other alt layer one competitors because it does, it is uniquely kind of um, designed to be highly optimized as a, a DA layer only and highly optimized for rollup, for supporting rollups, whereas Ethereum is, is not fully quite there yet. Interesting. Let's talk about Celestia a little bit more because I want to understand this, um, how it works. So when you talk about data availability, what, what, are, what data are we talking about? Is it the transaction history data, basically, or transaction data? Yeah. So um, every time a user, um, you know, sends a transaction, I want to send, you know, a, a certain amount of, of this token to you, um, you can 
execute that individually on the base layer of a blockchain. Yep. Um, but there is quite a lot of scalability gains from compressing these transactions down and bundling them together and just sending them through. And, and this is what like rollups and stuff do anyway. But when we talk about the, but like an Arbitrum or Optimism rollup today or an optimistic rollup or whatever, the, the ones we have today, um, they're doing execution there, mm-hmm. right? They're um, ordering the transactions, right? There's um, which is what the sequencer does or whatever, but then they're rolling them up and, you know, I don't know if what exact cryptography we're using now, but it's like, think of it like a Merkle tree, right? Like it's a it's a hash of hashes and type of stuff and it's all in there. And then they're posting that to the L1, right? But like, mm-hmm. where is the data, what does the data availability mean when like, like what is the data that we're talking about? Is it the hashes of the, is it the transaction data specifically? Like when we move, like what is Celestia gonna have on it, right? If it's only, Data availability, like, will will Ethereum or like other rollups, will they like look at the data on Celestia and like refer to it? Like, how does how does that do we have we even seen yet how it's going to come together? I think there's still a lot of questions um, about how it's going to all come together. Um, with Celestia, I think it's really about trying to generate the proofs, trying to be able to prove that this data was on chain at some point, that the user transactions um, did exist, that they were committed down. One of the core differences, though, between what Celestia is doing and what Ethereum rollups do, like Arbitrum and Optimism, is that Celestia doesn't necessarily have to offer anything around settling the order of transactions. So like for Ethereum, if perchance, you know, like a user on Optimism or Arbitrum um, wants to execute a transaction on Optimism or Arbitrum, but do so directly by interacting with a smart contract on the Ethereum level, they can. They can interact with interact with a smart contract on Ethereum and have their transaction executed on any of those rollups, right? And so that's like a settlement function yeah. that the Celestia blockchain will not be necessarily supporting. So that's one kind of key difference about what type of data we're talking about and what type of data users can actually interact with. It's going to be really, this is the first, yeah, sorry, this is the first test case for the thesis, right? Like this is the first thing that's going to go into production that actually does modularity, quote unquote, right? Yeah. Do you think about like, I like how you described at the beginning uh, of how modularity is kind of an evolution of the layered scaling thesis because like, should we, th- when we say the modularity thesis, when we say it, I don't think other people are really saying it this way, but when we say it, we really do include like the Lightning Network or these other rollups or side chains, right? They're all kind of, even if the layer that we're talking about actually does all four of the things, like a side chain typically does, right? It's sort of just arbitrary. Like, they could have done three of the four, and that would definitely be what people are calling modularity. Mm-hmm. But is that is that how to think about it? Like, it's sort of just, it is layers. It's just instead of building an entirely full protocol on top of another protocol, it may be taking the pieces of some pieces of a protocol. Yeah, it's honestly, I think it's a semantics debate. I mean, everyone even and in, I'm in, in it. The I want to be in it. I'm just telling everyone <laughs> modularity includes layered scaling. Um, <laughs> and I think it really depends on how you how honestly when you entered into the crypto industry space, you know, um, because I think when you think about how to scale blockchains, you think about the amount of transactions that are being processed on a single chain sharding 
the idea of sharding, which came before the modularity thesis, is simply, well, why don't we just like split apart all that transaction load and divide it among you know several mini blockchains? Um, it's very natural to try and think of like, well, why don't we just push off certain transaction loads to other layers? Which is where I think we get the layered scaling approach and we get things like sharding and all these other concepts. Yep. And I think modularity is one of those concepts. Um, but modularity specifically, um, the way I differentiate it from other layered scaling approaches is that from basically the protocol layer up, no single layer is fully monolithic. So interesting. So yeah. like you end up needing, if you're a blockchain analyst or, well, we'll, we'll stick with that. If you, you end up needing to look in a, in a future where this is widely adopted and this mm -hmm. is sort of how the Ethereum ecosystem goes you end up having to refer to a bunch of different places to sort of reconstruct or understand the total use of Ethereum, right? Like it's not just Ethereum anymore. It already isn't. To your point about rollups using 10% of gas today, like you can't just look at Ethereum. You got to look at the rollups. But like paint, paint for me the picture of what a future, let's just pick five years and we assume because maybe it'll take that long even if the modularity thesis plays out fully when you open up your wallet like what are you probably connecting to not the l1 no definitely not i think the layer one the all of the layer one protocols all of the data availability layers become so um obfuscated like so kind of like uh, yeah like hidden but built back yeah, it's like back, back office end, stuff. Yeah. yeah and um i think you start to get um a lot of third-party intermediaries in between the actual user interface that users are interacting with um you know you'll have, it's going to get very complex. So what you'll have is like the Celestia data availability layer, super optimized just to receive batches of, of proofs of batches of transactions from layer two rollups. Mm -hmm. You have all these layer two rollups that are highly optimized and just settling user transactions, ordering them, um, you know, compressing them down with ZK, zero knowledge yep. technology. Um, and then maybe you have a layer three on top of layer twos, wow. <laughs> where instead of having like a generalized execution layer, you have specific um, you have specific networks for a particular application, so that certain if uh, an application becomes very highly used, it doesn't overflow and congest. You know the the rest of the layer two network. So interesting. Like and then on top of layer twos, you have the front end of what users might be um, interacting with. And so I think the the ecosystem starts to get more complex. And um, in this entire picture, you have to ask yourself, you know, where is the interoperability between all of these layers? Where does the MEV sit? And I think that is really the, the weakest link that I see in this blockchain modularity thesis. The reason why it might not turn out is because um, Ethereum's dominance is because it is it is it has the most liquidity, it has the most interoperability between applications. And if we fragment that because of the modularity thesis and there are no solutions to really kind of bring that that layered ecosystem together, then I think that's where the modularity thesis fails, and that's where we collapse back into a monolithic chain, um, and that's where like you know high costs are kind of uh, a necessary byproduct to having security and to uh, deploying your apps. Really interesting. I feel like that is a huge question, right? Because that that's where it could work technologically, but be bad for the overall ecosystem, right? Right. Like they could solve like yeah, they all connect. 
let's say they do all connect in some way, but it's like, can the users, the transactions, the capital actually freely flow, right? Is it really composable in one space conceptually, right? And if it's not, um, for example, I mean, the simplest answer to your point about liquidity is DeFi, right? Exactly. I mean, even now, and it'd be interesting, we should look at this. Um, there is, you know, there's some DeFi on like the, the roll-ups and whatnot. There's pools and, and, and AMMs and whatnot. Um, I'm sure they're not as deeply liquid as on the L1. And what would it take for them to be, right? And you don't want, you just in general, like capital likes liquidity. It flows to liquidity, right? Mm -hmm. That's why the U.S. capital markets, right? It's got great property rights, efficient markets, nice regulations, blah, blah, blah. Like, so it flows here, right? It doesn't want to be in multiple different places. That's super interesting because I, I, I feel like, are the developers sort of really thinking about that? Because I, I could see this becoming the type of thing where the technologists, they try to solve the technology problem. But actually there's like a usability question and a yes. capital question that maybe some technologists might not fully grasp. Like it's sort of like you can do it, but like should you do it? Right. I think this is actually the biggest question that um, – developers in the Celestia ecosystem are trying to solve. Um, they're thinking about you know, unified settlement layers, unified sequencers, unified um, everything to try and solve this issue of usability and interoperability between the layers. But I think it's going to take years to really fully solve. So until we get there, I think there is still a, a very large value to having everything on a monolithic chain. Yeah. And, um, you know, the question is, will we ever really get there? Like, will the efficiency of, you know, and, and the liquidity of a, a DeFi ecosystem built on top of a monolithic change ever, you know, compete with that of what's on a modular chain? Um, and that's really how we need to think and measure kind of like the success of Celestia. Look at the DeFi ecosystem built in the Celestia ecosystem and see how efficiently, securely that capital moves around. It's so interesting, too, because this is the sort of, the, one of the only other chains that we really think we see use on is Solana. Um, and it takes a drastically different approach, right? Um, which is monolithic first, scale with hardware, et cetera. Um, and when I, I'm having this vision, I think it's from um, uh, the movie The Watchmen or the the comic books, but there's the, the or, or it, the Ethereum developers, you start from a centralized world, they build a decentralized thing, right? That and then now they're just like exploding it apart and putting it back together and exploding it apart and putting, I don't mean like destructively, I mean like disaggregating all the pieces and saying, where can we optimize? And then mm -hmm. now you're talking about unified settlement. It's kind of like, well, wait, can we take the disaggregated pieces and bring them back together? Mm -hmm. And some, it's like a jigsaw puzzle. They're constantly like, you know, trying different ways to arrange it. And like, can it, can it uh, be more efficient in this new configuration? Do you have, um, I'm sure you do and have thought about it, but like, what about decentralization in this world? You know, like, does modularity, we think, could it make decentralization better? I mean, some of these are going to have their own consensus, right? So, like, it's sort of like they're not relying on Ethereum. Other ones won't have their own consensus, right? So then it, they rely on Ethereum. Like, how do you, like, is there a risk that as they blow it apart into modules, but then look for ways to make it interlock? Like, do we, how do you think about it? decentralization in a modular world is there any i mean i'm i i this is sort of a loaded question because i know we don't really know yet <laughs> no it's a, it's a really great question um 
And I think by introducing more layers and settlement schemes in between the protocols, you necessarily lose out on decentralization because you're fragmenting the number of users, the number of security providers across each layer instead of aggregating them to one layer. And I think this idea of layered scaling approaches, when you really think of why it is that we would want to build on top of, say, Ethereum rather than Celestia, it's because of decentralization. It's because of the gains of of the fact that Ethereum is the most decentralized general purpose blockchain in the world. Um, But I think you start to obfuscate from all of the benefits of that if users are paying in fiat and stable coins and having the roll up kind of like automatically exchange these fiats and stable coins and tokens on behalf of the users and then pay batch all of these transactions down to Ethereum, as in like the only customers of the Ethereum blockchain are really these roll-ups, these like centralized right. um, companies that are the primary holders of ETH, primary you know revenue generators of Ethereum. I think you can get to a future where decentralization is, um, it, it where the future starts to look actually very similar to what we have today, as opposed to you know the the future, the decentralized future that we might have thought of when we first considered yeah. Web3 of every single user operating their own node, every single user, you know, being able to send their own transactions directly from the, the layer one. Is this where, um, and maybe it's clicking for me because I get most of my information about the Ethereum world from you and you've been, is this something where Eigenlayer comes in and helps the the restaking concept, which is like, if we're having all these different places where stuff happens and they all have their own security, well, can't isn't that part of the eigenlayer thesis is like, well, maybe we can make it easier for all those other places to use Ethereum security? Is that kind of the idea? Well, I think the modularity thesis doesn't work if you don't have restaking. Because you have to, if you're securing, say, um, the, 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 the protocol layer, the base layer, and you envision a world where the protocol layer doesn't do everything, you necessarily need all these other layers, how are you going to secure those layers with the same kind of economic security that you have on the protocol? Yeah, you can't start with you a whole need, new validator set. And exactly. Have a- you need restaking. And so I think Eigenlayer represents you know, a very core part of the modularity thesis that's necessary to uphold this vision of a secure modular blockchain. Um, and and I think even that is still in its very experimental phases. I think Eigenlayer has, is launching in tranches and, um, you know, right. we've yet to see an actively validated set from Eigenlayer really take off. So a lot of the modularity thesis is very nascent, yeah. I will say. <laughs> this is fascinating because you know, one way or another, I mean, this is a scaling blockchains is a decades old question at yes. this point, right? I mean, I think back to the the Bitcoin block size wars. We've got Johnny Beer's book up here, uh, which is a great book, by the way. I always show this book. It's, I think, one of my, the most exciting and interesting books about Bitcoin and also, of course, blo- I mean, Bitcoin's history is blockchain's history. And right, the debate was, well, we want to scale Bitcoin. There are a, a bunch of merchants and, and others wanted to make it better for payments, right? I said, it's too expensive. The block space is too scarce. We should make it add block space to reduce fee pressure and that would enable like micropayments, right? And that's, of course, Bitcoiners, the Bitcoin blockchain went a little bit of a different way, but it has effectively increased the block size over time. Mm-hmm. And, and but that's a pretty like blunt object, right? Let's just double the block. It's like, let's just raise the gas limit, right? To your, and I've heard you, Say this, they've, they've already raised the gas limit like a bajillion times on ETH, right? It's yes, pretty high, right, at this point. So there's plenty, well, I don't know if there's, there's not plenty, but there's 
just simply increasing the block size isn't enough because it puts all burdens on nodes in the end it like can really only do it so much right you have other you know supporters of a bitcoin fork that i won't mention have argued that you could have gigabyte size blocks that would be fine they say well it's not fine because there are latency issues you can't download a gigabyte and that quickly, right? So that causes node centralization, also the costs of the nodes to store all that data. So this really is that same story reimagined again, a better, newer way, they think, of scaling the blockchain. To that point, um, that issue of, you know, you have to continually increase the block size, um, one of the core kind of technologies that is often talked about when we talk about the modulator, modularity thesis is the data availability sampling um, right. solution. So instead of basically increasing the block size, um, you allow nodes to sample data within a block. So Rather than store of, it all. Yeah. And so instead of having to validate the entirety of a block, you could have, you know, um, a very large amount of data and nodes sampling, say, like, um, forget, only 10% yeah, you had the, the math block. in the paper, but it's yes. like a very small amount. You can actually get to like 99.999% certainty that the yes. whole block is good. Exactly. The just by sampling a couple percent of it. Exactly. It's really interesting. But that only works if the point of the protocol is to be a data availability layer. And store the data. It has to Temporar be there. Right. Yeah. Temporarily store the so data. So that we can look at it and sample it. And, and say that this is verified data. Um, however, if you're trying to make a protocol that also executes transactions, say, you know, has an EVM, that's where I think you start to get bogged down with like, okay, then do we actually have to increase the block sizes and all this stuff? But if you can make your layer as efficient of a data availability layer as possible, you can utilize these solutions like data availability sampling that does allow anybody to be able to run a node on even like your smartphone. Yeah, and because I they think, don't actually have to store it all. They just have to periodically sample some, yes. verify it. Then I guess what, like you store like a, the, the blockchain they're storing is some like, you know, what we call like a light, a light node. It stores a, a, a series of hashes, not rather than all the data, right? Because they know that the data was valid and validated. Yes. And if you have that that kind of core decentralized layer for a data availability layer, you can have, say, more centralization on layer twos and layer threes, but at least the very um, the foundation of where all that data is being verified and validated is as decentralized as possible. And so I think that's where you start to trend towards a future where you can really have a secure, decentralized, modular blockchain. Um, but There's a lot of pieces. There's a lot of pieces to <laughs> yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, we're going to be following it. Um, before we wrap, what else uh, are you looking at in the Ethereum world? You mentioned the stuff for the next upgrades. When do we expect at this point that Cancun Deneb upgrade, by the way. Well, my um, projection. This has proto dank sharding 4844. Yes. Yeah. Yes. 4844 Cancun Deneb. My projection is early next year. Um, the way that testing is going, the way that developers are are still identifying new bugs yeah. in the software really just highlight that. Um, they're not ready yet to be launching this upgrade on existing public Ethereum test nets, and they're going to have to get through that. Yeah. I think they'll need at least a month to to upgrade to. And that puts to, us into the holiday season. Yeah. So they always they, they don't like to right like fall and spring are typically like upgrade season. They don't like uh yeah they don't like the holidays. There was one was it like it might have been like five years ago at this point four years ago they did an upgrade on like right around new year's and there was a bug and so they had to do a quick like pat uh, like a hot fix patch upgrade which was fine but it was like during new year's like it was like on january 1st or something literally like people around the world were partying including you know 
I mean, everyone, everyone celebrates January 1, right? Like they always show when you, if you stay up and watch TV, like they show every single time zone celebrating it. And I remember that was like, I think they learned that they don't want to do any upgrades around that time because if anything happens, like people are literally like with their families and stuff. Yeah. Um, so that's contributing to it also, right? I mean, if they finish in a month, like why wouldn't they launch it in December? Probably for this reason. Yeah, I mean, open source development, especially for Ethereum, is a full time job. No, I mean, as much as possible, we don't want developers to be executing upgrades on holidays, weekends, or like right. late into the night. Right. I will say though, the merge was a unique kind of example of an upgrade that People went were live. Driving to it, they, yeah. it was like we got to get this done. At like yeah. 4 a.m. at <laughs> night, but um, and again, and I will say one other thing outside of the Cancun Deneb yeah. upgrade that I hope people really pay attention to now is what's going into the upgrade afterwards. So um, there's a, a report that I've written about, you know, how we're going to have to address the validator set size growth. But in addition to that, you know, there's a lot of questions around, okay, do we focus the next upgrade on upgrading the EVM or do we focus the upgrade on, you know, upgrading Ethereum's, um, you know, data storage models and 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 moving towards, say, like a Verkle type um, data proof system versus Merkle trees. Oh, um, I'm gonna, you're going to tell us on a different show what Verkle <laughs> trees are. I'll, I'm going to ask later, but I love it. But these kinds of questions, it's a lot of politics. It's not even, it's going away from really like the technical merit of these upgrades and thinking about what's most important to What's the, the priority? Yes. Yeah, yeah, we'll get into that. That's really interesting. So we don't know yet. There's a couple things on the table. A couple things on the table, and already we're starting to see these discussions spring on the ACD calls. So some so. jockeying around what's yes. like, uh, it's going to be interesting. So, um, Hey, if you don't follow Christine's work, um, she publishes notes every week on Ethereum development, and it's quite good. So make sure you check that out. And check out the report, Scaling Blockchains, the Modularity Thesis. It's on our website, galaxy.com slash research. Um, Christine, my friend, thank you so much for coming on Galaxy Brains, as always. Thanks for having me, Alex. That's it for this week's episode of Galaxy Brains. Thanks to our guest, Christine Kim from Galaxy Research and Bimnet Abibi from Galaxy Trading, as always. Lots of exciting stuff happening. Don't turn away. Bitcoin's the greatest show on Earth, and we will be here next week to cover it. See you then. Thanks for listening to Galaxy Brains, the weekly podcast from Galaxy Research. If you enjoy the show, please like, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. To follow Galaxy Research, sign up for our weekly newsletter at gdr.email, read our content at galaxy.com research, and follow us on Twitter at glxyresearch. See you next week.